This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Three Wise Monkeys podcast, a weekly podcast that's all about the markets and investing. My name is Andrew Page, founder of strongman.com, and today I'm joined by Matt Joss from mattjoss.com. Thank you, Andrew. Very happy to be here. Absent today is one Claude Walker, but hopefully back in the seat very, very soon. Uh, Matt, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about a reliable recession indicator that has just flashed red. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, we're going to talk about a very small uh, software company called ReadCloud. You're mm-hmm. going to walk us through that. Yep. Uh, we're going to um, look at Hanson versus WiseTech ah. uh, around their acquisition models. Yes. Um, and then last, I think we're going to have a, a chat about valuation. So how kind of a practical how-to guide of valuation, a like mysterious it. topic. All right. Yeah. Lots to talk about. You know what? Let's just dive straight into it. A lot of people's eyes are going to roll straight back into their head when you say, let's talk about the yield curve. Um, (laughs) I didn't say that. Let's talk about a recession indicator. You didn't say that, but that's very true. Um, But you are going to say it. And that's what's been in The Economist lately. It's been in the Fin Review. Sort of at the nerdier end of the financial spectrum, people are talking about, quote unquote, the inverted yield curve. Mm -hmm. But as you rightly say, it's one of these really reliable, at least historically, recession indicators. Yeah. So let's. There's a lot to unpack there. Start with a definition of what the hell is the yield curve. Yeah. So uh, the yield curve is um, kind of a representation of how of the uh, how interest rates are different for um, bonds of different maturities, which <laughs> getting pretty in the weeds there. Okay. But effectively, if you're lending money for a longer amount of time, normally you demand a higher interest rate because your money's locked up for a so long time. So if I'm going to lend you five bucks, you'll be paying me back in a week. I don't really need. Yeah, you're not as worried. That. If you're going to pay back in 10 years, I'm like, hey, Matt, I want a bit of interest. I want yeah, a bit of compensation. Exactly. So that, that's exactly the numbers that you'd normally look at is the 10-year yeah. yield, the 10-year interest rate, you could say, on government debt in the US versus yeah. the three-month interest rate on government okay. debt. And normally that curve would be like, upward sloping and kind of just a normal world where if you're going to lock up your money for a longer time, you demand a higher interest rate. And it's almost always that shape. Mm -hmm. But just last week, it quote unquote inverted, which means that it's sloping downwards, which means that you're getting a higher interest rate on short-term bonds than I am on, say, a 10-year bond. Yeah. Why? Yeah, why? And I guess, why is that such a big deal? Um, So... The, why it's such a big deal and why the markets crashed on um, Friday in the US and, and Monday here mm-hmm. uh, is because it has predicted uh, each of the last seven recessions or it happened just before each of the last seven recessions. I thought it was six out of the last seven recessions. Uh, so it's predicted all seven, but there's been one false positive in the mix. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh-huh. there was one in 1998, which we can touch on in a minute. But okay. essentially, um, it, it has tended to come, I believe it's up to 12 months to 24 months before each yep. of these major recessions. Yep. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why, but the, the the big reason is that it's kind of a predictor that people think the, the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. It means that they think the economy is softening, which I think everyone agrees is what's happening now. So it's just kind of like a, a tipping point where everyone, where that becomes obvious to a degree. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if, if I thought that and, and I thought, you know, the economy is going to get much worse, I mean, still, I, that does, why would that make me happier to get less of an interest rate return 
over 10 years than I would over three months, for example. Yeah, so there's two effects. There's the, the short-term um, interest rates and the long-term. So starting right. with the long-term, what happens is people freak out about how the economy is going. Mm-hmm. Um, they get worried. They move their money out of stocks and they buy long-term government debt. You've got to put the money yeah. somewhere. Exactly. You can't just stuff it under the mattress. 100%. And gotcha. in the US, that's what effectively what happens. Everyone goes, oh gosh, this isn't good. I've got to put it somewhere. I put it into these long-term, very safe things. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the very act, obviously... Yield is mm-hmm. inversely related to the price. So yeah. if everyone is buying these bonds, they are pushing the price of those bonds up. And if the price of those bonds are going up, the interest rates are going down. Is that kind yeah, of how it works? Yeah, that's exactly what, how it works. Gotcha. Um, so at the same time that's happening, on the on the short end, the Federal Reserve has been raising rates over the last um, little while, last couple of years. Yep. So you kind of have this the, these two effects where they're, in the short term, they're raising interest rates. And the long term, everyone's kind of getting a bit scared about the long term outlook of the economy. And that's how you get to this downward sloping thing. And that's the that's a dangerous point, I guess. That's why there's that link to recessions, because when the um, when the bank, central banks start raising interest rates, they're taking away the punch bowl, you could say, and everyone mm. starts sobering up and realizing how much debt there is and all these <laughs> other worries. So that's like it's the start of that cycle. Uh, the other point I want to touch on, though, is that it makes it tougher for a bank to be profitable. Mm. And that's a big deal. So have you heard of the 363 rule, Andrew? It's something about borrow at three, yep. lend at six, yep. be on the golf course at three. Yeah, it's spot is on. That it? That's it. Yeah. So it's the old banking rule. So pay interest on the deposits. At 3%. It doesn't endear you to them at all, does <laughs> it? it all. As long as you're on the golf course by three o'clock. Yeah. So pay interest on your deposit at 3%, lend it out to everyone else like us at 6% yeah. and be on the golf course by 3 A nice little so net interest margin 100%. To, to use the jargon. Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, interest rates are a bit lower now, so it might seem a bit foreign. Yeah. But the idea is um, that there's that big difference. And right now, it's kind of the other way, right? So you could say that um, it squashes that 3-6 profitability. Right. So they have to borrow at a high rate. And when they lend out, the kind of comparable long-term lending rates are very low. So right. banks become a lot less profitable. Yeah. And that makes them less willing to lend. And when banks are less willing to lend, that's when everything, all credit starts kind of seizing up. And yep. that's when you can lead to a recession because they don't lend to start a new business. They don't lend to someone building the a house. Real economy the real economy gets impacted. Exactly. So what's but interesting... We're, we're no, nothing in yeah. our market is like structurally or systemically <laughs> important to the banks or the housing market. Surely yeah. we don't have anything to worry about, yeah. do we? Um, I'd say that one one thing to keep in mind, Australia's interest rate, the same thing actually happened last week as well. So Australia's yeah. also inverted. But it's not really the same signal here for like a few different reasons. We have um, We borrow a lot from... Our banks borrow from the US as well. There's different funding. Yep. We also have huge population growth. All that other stuff we talked about before. Yep. So yep. it hasn't been very productive here at all. There's been like, it's happened Worth six noting. times since the GFC. Yep. But in the US, it has whoa, been whoa, whoa. fairly productive. Six times since the GFC in Australia, yeah, the Australian Australia. yield curve is inverted. Yeah, correct. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. it's not, it's not nothing okay. to worry about here. So we, we could have been having this line. conversation multiple times, yeah. you know, in the last 10 years. Yeah, and just correct. been completely wrong. Exactly. The market's gone on to new record highs. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so in terms of its history in the US, it's been very productive. That, as I mentioned, 1998, it like flitted around, inverted, and didn't, there was no recession. So it's not like it guarantees anything. It's been associated. Um, I actually was Googling on The Economist to like see um, just what their coverage of it was. And it was really interesting. There's like 
the last two times that it had been mentioned was 2006 and 1999, which is yeah. before the last couple of recessions. Yeah. I know that because um, you bastard. You you said, hey, here's a quote from The Economist. And I read it. I was like, oh, wow, that's really scary. And then afterwards you go, oh, by the way, that's 2006. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh. You thought it applied to the <laughs> Yeah, well, everything sounds like the same language. It could have really been funny. easily transplanted, right? Um, but yeah, I guess it wasn't, my read is it, it's becoming more of a thing as it's become more predictive so right. like people are freaking out about it more and the stock market was down because of that so maybe that changes the whole dynamics when people worry about something that tends not to happen as much a lot of um, a lot yeah. of i've heard other people talk more generally about some of these indicators when you're looking at market data you know we've got especially in the u.s what 100 plus years sort of data but then then people i think rightly say well the, the economy was really different in fact the world was really different in 1923 you yeah. know how relevant is that to the modern global integrated economy um, secondly, even if you say actually it is perfectly reliable or, or perfectly consistent, you've got seven data points. Like it's mm. not a lot. Like a statistician would say, yeah, that's a very small sample set. Is that really that accurate to be able to say, you know, that that is a definite hard and fast flashing red recession indicator yeah. that we should all run for the hills? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there is one important point to note about what's different this time, which is just how crazy monetary world is with. Um, with you know quantitative easing so yeah. it means that for starting point everything's super low all those rates are very low yeah. which makes it much easier for these things to invert so i think that some of that predictive signal could be lost i'd say that what's clear is that um most of the funds world most big investors are predicting a, a slowdown i don't think in, that's in dispute yep um and they're predicting that the the federal reserve will probably be cutting rates rather than raising them which is quite a different picture to like a year ago when Amazingly everyone was different. happy yeah. off um the even tax from what cuts the fed and, itself yeah. was saying exactly yeah. so that uh, that's the interesting part i think there's still plenty of room for the u.s to muddle through and whatever else but it's yeah, yeah it's an interesting point and at least helps to make sense i guess of what was going on on monday when everything just plummeted for, so so when you're reading about inverted yield curve and that yep. from now on hopefully a little exactly. little bit of added context yep. for you listeners good chat for around the barbecue but yeah so uh <laughs> yeah, especially if you want to really impress <laughs> people and make a lot of friends at your next yeah, barbecue yeah. at least like, terrify hey, them it? or bore them <laughs> yeah, i don't know right. which um but yeah speaking of <laughs> no, maybe not. What's, what's the segue here <laughs> <laughs> segue. tell us about a exciting Interesting company, perhaps? Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word exciting. Look, it's, it's called Reed Cloud. Um, it's a very small company. It only listed at the beginning of last year. It came onto my radar because it started trending on Strawman, so I took notice of it. And I was just having a read through of some of the, the comments that people had posted. And I thought, actually, this looks interesting. At a high level, it, it tends to tick a few boxes. So I thought... Part of, I guess, and we should re really be clear on this, part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is just bring a regular flow of ideas to our, to our listeners. And I want to stress at the outset that it's not a buy recommendation. I'm not buying shares. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting. And I think it's it's worth um, just having a quick run through. Because yeah. uh, this is not the kind of company, you know, that you, you're ever going to read about in the financial review, frankly, or, or any of the major news outlets. So... Uh, having framed that all out, it, it is an education technology company. Basically, they've got a bit of software that delivers ebooks um, to students. They very much focus on this niche. I've heard Claude talk about this before. He makes a really good point that the, the big technology companies in the US go for the big markets mm -hmm. and the successful tech companies in Australia go for highly niche kind of markets. And so that's what these guys are doing. It's not a Kindle, right? It's not that when you think ebooks, don't think that. This is very much focused on, in particular, the high 
high school segment. So it delivers the textbooks, um, just re general reading books, the curriculum, all of this kind of stuff through this platform. And what makes it really cool is that the school itself can manage all of this at a high level. Teachers and students can collaborate so they can make notes, they can upload videos, they can share links. Um, uh, it's even got analytics on it as well, so teachers can sort of see well, you know, what students are doing, the reading material, who's been engaged, presents a whole bunch of analytics to it there. So it's pretty cool, but it's also happening in the context of this big, big structural change. So whatever happens with ReadCloud, I think everyone here is, is on the same page that in the future, you know, schools are going to be a digital kind of area. I'm, my kids are only in primary school, but they've got digital whiteboards and, you know, mm -hmm. all this kind of, it, it is happening. There's a very big BYOD um, policy is bring your own device. So kids, it's not a luxury anymore. You, yeah. you got to bring an iPad to school or a laptop, yeah. right? It's not the slate pads and chalk of your youth. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not like the chisel and stone tablet. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really come a long way. And so, you know, one of the stats I was reading in their prospectus, and this is their prospectus, so take it with a grain of salt, but it was supposedly a study that by 2021, I think it was, 60% of high school students, as high schools in Australia will be 100% in terms of their digital learning environment. So yeah. this, this, this trend is happening and you think okay um it's technology there's a big tailwind seems kind of sexy um but really what sort of piqued my interest was that um oh and i should stress still loss making burning through cash right mm -hmm. early early stage business the tech was uh, the company was only founded in 2011 they only commercialized in 2015 and as i said only listed last year but the number of schools have gone from three in 2015 to 23 the year after to 50 to 70. The end of this calendar year, they're now saying they should have about 200 on there. Um, not only that too, it's the, the revenue is growing really strongly. So less than 200K back in 2015. In 2017, it was just shy of a million dollars. Last year, it was more than 150% growth at 2.1 million. And in the first half of 2019, they did 2.33 million. So more than they did in all of 2018 in just the first half. And what's interesting about that is there's a high degree of seasonality here because obviously the school year starts at the calendar year and that's when most of the spending happens. So to get you know more than 2018's revenue in just the first half, which is generally their slower half, is, is really nice. Now, part of listing, the rationale there is we need to raise a whole bunch of cash. They raised at 20 cents, $5.5 million, hired a bunch of extra salespeople to sort of accelerate the rollout. Um, so fixed costs look to be around $2 million. Um, though if they keep trending it this way, they'll probably be passing break even in the next financial year. And so why so this- So that's the 2020 financial year? In the year? 2020 financial year, that yeah. depends, right? There's a, there's a bunch of moving parts in there that, that, that assumes that costs will be fairly consistent. They reckon that that, that, that will be the case. That, are, that um, mean, There's a mix too between what they sell directly and what they sell through resellers as well. There's different margin. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's in that. But why that's interesting is, you know, we talk a lot about inflection points. So you've got a company that seems to have traction. There's a big market that they're, they're growing into here. 2,700 secondary schools in Australia. There's um, vocational education training um, uh, verticals that they can move into, primary and all the rest of it. So they're growing very fast. They're approaching break-even. Um, it's got a backing of Thorny. Um, a lot of investors will know of Thorny. They've backed some pretty successful companies over the years. They've got a 12% stake in this business. It's led by the founder. So all very, very interesting. Um, but as I say, very early stage, Yeah. very, very high risk. And one of the things that I think is a, is a bit of a trap here that's easy for people to miss is that 
especially if you're getting some of your data from Comsec or E-Trade, which just rely on a third-party data provider, it looks like they've only got about 45 million shares on issue, mm. 25 cents a share. You think, oh, $15 million. Yeah. You know, on a forward basis, based on what you might reasonably assume for them to do, that's only like three and a bit time sales for yeah. a company growing at that pace. It seems super cheap. Um, what you've but. got to, but <laughs> what you've got to realize is that there's 45 million shares in escrow from insiders and founders yeah. and that. So that's, that's shares that they've been issued that they cannot sell until 2020. And like a lot of us, they will probably look to realize the value of their stake at some point in time. So there's going to be a lot more liquidity on the market. And when you sort of work out the market cap, so the value of the business, number mm -hmm. of shares times the share price, um, on a on a fully um, diluted is not the right word for it, but in terms of all the shares that are actually out there, um, it's actually closer to $25 million okay. in markets. It's so significantly big higher double, than $15 yeah. Million. Yeah. And there's about $20 million in options out there as well, exercisable at $0.30. Cents. So it's just something that when, when, you're, when you look at that, that means that this thing is, some, again, depending on, on what numbers you want to use, somewhere around four and a half times forward sales for a company that, that is so far bleeding cash um, and is unprofitable. So it sounds very interesting. I know the shares, um, I guess I think it listed at 20 cents. They got up to 60 cents-ish last year. Yeah. Um, and it's come way back down now to the 20-ish range. Yeah. So a lot of good stuff had happened by the sounds in terms of revenue. But what's your sense of, yeah, what's, what's, come, what's brought it back down to earth and what's kind of the bear case? Is there any concerns what yeah what, what's the big red flag yeah so uh, look it's one of those things where i think that you see this a lot a company lists with a lot of fanfare there's a lot of excitement there's probably a lot of boards out there where people are just relentlessly hyping and pumping the hell out of this thing and you see it a lot where companies legitimately have a good story but then the then you know the market just runs away with it it just yeah. it never made sense at 60 cents a share i mean you know based even if they continue to double their revenue for the next five each year for the next five years it's hard to sort of understand how we're going to talk about valuation in a moment but it's going to be very hard to sort of work out how do i make money at that so i think it was it was just getting way carried away when i was thumb sucking some numbers before this podcast i actually think for me a fair price is probably around 17 cents which is well below the current 25 cent price the bear case i think the bear case is that although they talk a good game they just don't manage to maintain this sales momentum um, maybe they don't manage to scale well as well. So a lot of companies can can grow their sales very strongly, but grow their costs just as strongly, if not stronger. Mm. So um, I've only just started looking at it, um, but that seems to me like some some areas to watch. There's about 2.9 million of cash in the bank. Mm -hmm. They burnt through about 1.3 million in the last six months. So again, they're sort of against the clock here. If yeah. sales don't really pick up, they're going to have to do a capital raise, which means there's even further dilution. So let me stress, I don't own shares. I'm not looking to buy shares anytime soon. But there is something that is interesting about these companies that are in a fast growing area, demonstrated fast growth with traction, approaching an inflection point. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on it. Yeah, nice. I guess um, one other quick point I'd be interested to maybe get your thoughts on, or just something I noticed was um, 
that they had a relatively large uh, cost that goes to the publishers, the kind of fees that they pay to those guys. So I guess another thing to keep in mind if you're researching the company is whether they have enough power over the long term to, to really reap the gains of what they, they sow. Um, if the publishers control all those rights, at the moment it seems like they're charging a very large share of revenue. And if that continued, it could be that revenue could grow fast, but potentially the company wouldn't actually make much out of it. So something maybe to keep in mind. You raise an excellent point in the prospectus they made a big deal of how we can do more direct sales, which we get a much better margin. By much better margin, about three times better Mm -hmm. than what they get through a reseller. Having said that, resellers do bring some great benefits. Um, They do white label their projects. Some Mm. of the two big resellers they've got, one is Office Max. This is a subsidiary of of Office Depot. So that Mm -hmm. big US company is like a very, very big player in the domestic market for textbooks and that kind of stuff. The other one is Jacaranda, which is owned by John Wiley & Sons, also a US listed business, also a very big publisher of school textbooks in Australia. So when you've got these guys that have these relationships with literally hundreds of schools and they say, hey, the new biology textbook for year 11 students is out, come get it through our platform. It is it is a very, very worthwhile partnership to have, but you are 100% right. If they all of a sudden say that, no, nah, we're not going to go with you anymore yeah. or we're going to develop our own in-house. Yeah, maybe give us those profits. Yeah, yeah you know, or we're just not going to give you as much of a yeah. share as we used to. So yeah. 100%, 100%, very, very good thing to watch Excellent. out for. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, let's talk a little bit about WiseTech and Hanson. Now, WiseTech has come up, Frequently, <laughs> yes, yeah, um, and we're aware of that, but I, I, we're we're really trying to sort of uh, address a different dimension to that. And yeah. the reason that we thought uh, we should talk about it, we got this really great great question from one of our listeners, Dave the Happy Singer. Um, you, you might have seen him on uh, Twitter at Happy Singer. Uh, g'day, Dave, and thank you for the question. Let me read it out. It says, "Okay, the question I have is Hanson versus WiseTech." Both founder-led business-to-business leaders in in their SaaS niches, software as a service, scalable, sticky, recurring, acquisition for geographic expansion. Why can Hans, what can Hanson learn from WiseTech and what differs in their strategy and execution? So he says he has some thoughts, but he's interested in ours. And we, we read this and we thought it's taken us a while, Dave, to get to it. But we, um, we did think it was an excellent question because they do share so many similarities and yet they're trading at very, very different multiples. Very quickly, we've, we've covered WiseTech pretty well, um, logistics software. Give us a quick rundown of Hanson, Matt. Yeah, so uh, Hanson um, provides billing software. So for like an electrical utility or a water company or whatever else. Telcos as well. Telcos, like the, yeah, um, yeah uh, pay TV, anything where you need to calculate billing for a lot of people and issue invoices. They're kind of this, the back-end software that allows you to do that. Um, and that's a super important um, piece of software, mission critical, you'd call it, because that is how you get paid as a business. So you need to make sure you're doing that um, regularly and reliably. So in that sense, the two businesses are, are somewhat similar and they're, they're very sticky, as, as Dave pointed out. Um, YSTX software also kind of mission critical to what the business is doing. But they do have a, a few important differences as well. And I guess first I would just touch on kind of more broadly on acquisition models. So. Uh, people get a bit nervous about companies that acquire a lot of other businesses for, for good reason, which is that um, there's been a lot of problems with it before where it's, yeah. it's gone badly. Yeah. Um, so I think back in like the 70s, there was a real boom in the conglomerate boom era where yeah. everyone just discovered that if your PE was 20 
and you could buy something at a price to earnings multiple of five, then you suddenly capture all this value in, in quotation you, you marks. You get those earnings, but yeah. the, the market now values those exactly. earnings at a much higher level. That's kind of the, the bad, um, that has a bad rap for a good reason. So I think that's like, you, if you're just playing that game purely, it's not a good idea because over time you kind of dilute your good multiple with all these other bad things you've acquired. There's a lot of acquisition risk and there's been a lot of good research as we touched well, on. Well, it's just hard to integrate them, exactly. right? Like you, you take very different businesses and cultures and you mash them together. Yeah. You generally, it's very messy from a balance sheet standpoint because you've got all this goodwill yeah. on there, which and is the difference between often. what you paid versus the, the actual accountable assets. Yeah. And they very often get written down, which is a, which is an actual loss, yeah. even though businesses love to call it a non-cash adjustment. Um, so yes, yeah. so definitely so a lot of problems. But um, where acquisitions can make sense is, A, at least if there's a significant scale benefit, so you can kind of roll together, they're more powerful than they are apart, and that can be different types. Yep. The other is if you can improve the business itself. So this is what Hanson tries to do. It, uh, as it, it's, it calls it, it Hansonizes the business. I love it. Which is quite an, a funny thing considering that the founder's name is Andrew Hanson. So yeah. it's quite funny hearing I'm on earnings calls. Be like if you're like, I Andrewize the business. <laughs> you know? God help us all if we start Andrewizing it. Um, but yeah, so that means like just running the business in a better, more efficient way. And they have a lot of processes they do that they think are better. So that's one way that you can improve. Yep. Um, and then the other is what WiseTech is doing, which is also, it's more like using the acquisitions as a way to gain a geographic foothold. And they're the not really in. buying the business at all. They're buying yep. the staff's local knowledge um, and an existing business and existing customers. So it's a pretty different model. Um, the other main point that I'd make though is these are two very different um, businesses and mm. that WiseTech is organically growing. If it didn't acquire anything, I think it would be growing 25, 30% a year organically, very healthily. Yep. Um, whereas Wise, uh, Hanson is in a business where the software it's in is so sticky that it's very, very hard to win a customer away. Yep. They would be lucky to grow 5% a year. And yep. for the last few years, they've been kind of flatlined um, at, you know, lucky to do zero one to two percent a year organic growth yes. so that's a very different model it makes Hanson a lot more dependent on acquisitions um i should give give them a little bit of credit though i mean Hanson have delivered phenomenal long-term returns to their shell like yeah. 30% per year on average over the last 10 years. Yeah. We, we get a lot of funny 10-year figures at the moment because it was the GFC 10 years ago. Yeah. So we do have to take that with a grain of salt. But even over the last five years, 20% plus yeah. per earnings growth. Um, you know, Back in 2014, their earnings were... Actually, 2015 is about 10 cents a share and now it's 14 cents. So even on a per share basis with all those acquisitions, 40% growth over three years... Yeah, ain't, ain't nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say... So I they have, do it well, I should say. The yeah. acquisitions, they do it well. And I have owned Hanson before in the in my prior life as a portfolio manager. It was one of the companies um, that we held. Yep. So there's a lot of good stuff. And they do make... They're very smart with their capital allocation, which is important. Yep. But they do really also need that organic growth to be firing. And that's ultimately why I decided um, to exit that position. But I do still hold WiseTech, yep. as we touched on. Um, but yeah, so that, that model can work extremely well. There's a company in the US called Constellation Software, which just buys a whole lot of software businesses yes. and they've that's one of the great stories if you want to google that, that by the Absolutely. way actually it's such anyone any student of investing should really be aware of that um yeah and i guess one of the other differences that is related to that organic growth is hansen still has a very large share of revenue maybe around half that isn't recurring exactly it's kind of developing features and work for the customer. So it's often repeating that customers often need little changes to their software or they do some new plan, but it's kind of different from the sticky SaaS recurring, whereas WiseTech would be over 
90% recurring and revenue retention rates over 100%. So yep. their existing customers grow every year, which is very attractive. Nice. So those that makes them two quite different companies and um, a, some good reason for some pretty different multiples. And they're kind of using the acquisitions in a different way. Hanson's using it, um, bolting on businesses, using that for growth more, whereas WiseTech is more using that as a foundation and kind of turbocharge their own organic growth, at least if they execute it well. Uh, yeah, I, I hear all of that. I, I think that's a really good explanation. Um, one thing that's interesting is I don't own either companies. I have made a recommendation on Hanson on my strawman profile. And while taking full note of everything you've said there, there is, there's a, a one stark difference that I tend to notice is that Hanson's trading on a price to sales of two and a half and a PE of 20. Yeah. Ha- uh, WiseTech is trading on a PE of 130 and a price to sales of 20, I think, even on a forward basis yeah. or 30 on a trailing basis. Price to sales, basis. price to earnings, 20 the same, you know, it's yeah. pretty much a yeah. one. No, no. <laughs> it's kind of... Yeah, very radically different multiples and valuations. Yeah, so it's kind of like, while I, I like both companies, for me, from a valuation standpoint, I think Hanson's got a little bit, it's a little bit more attractive. They have talked a little bit about how things are going to be a bit flat this year, but it's it's one of those things you see off a lot of these businesses, particularly very long-term thinking businesses, which I think is fair to call Hanson, where it's probably like, you know what, I, I'm not one of these people who's going to obsess over what earnings are going to be next year, as long as that you know five to 10 year average is moving in the right direction. And I'm mm. paying a reasonable multiple for that. Uh, I think I think it's I think it, it makes sense. Having said that, and you can jump on a straw man and check my valuation out, but it's 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 not a mile away from from what I consider to be fair value. But it's, it is it is a little bit more attractive. Speaking of valuation, Andrew, do you want to run us through Andrew's guide to, to valuation? You know, I, I wanted to talk a bit about valuation. We've touched on it. We touch it. We talk about it all the time, in fact. It's like how important valuation is. Like if you're going to buy something on the share market, you have to have some kind of notion of whether it's cheap or expensive, except that, you know, Everyone tends to base cheap or expensive on what the share price has done. If the share price is down 50%, it's cheap. If it's up you know, 50%, it's expensive. And it's really spurious thinking. So, so um, I get a lot of questions on terms of, well, how? How do you how do, you do that? Um, so I, it's very hard to do in podcast format. So I'm going to try and do it at, at a very high level um, just to sort of, I guess, get, get our listeners thinking. Um, I think there's a really neat definition for valuation. And, and we can actually define it perfectly. We can't always calculate, we probably can never calculate it exactly, but we can we can define it perfectly. And the real true, some people call it the intrinsic value of a company is simply all of the cash it's going to spit out over its entire life. Mm. And we just adjust that for what we call a discount rate yeah. because a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. So, you know, I, I, I would, if I'm going to get a dollar You'd rather next have a million dollars now than when you're 90. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if I'm going to get a hundred bucks next year, I'd probably value that at $90 today because yeah. I want I want to be compensated for, yeah. for my time. So that's how you define a business. So if I can work out exactly what a company is going to throw out over its entire life and I can work out to me what's an appropriate rate of return, I can actually to the, you know, 10 decimal places work out exactly what a share is. Trouble is, it's very hard to work out what a company is going to earn next year, let alone in 15 years, you know. Uh, so it's, it's very, very tricky. Um, so I thought we'd, we'd, we'd talk a bit about a couple of hacks that you might be able to use. One of my favorite rules of thumb when it comes to valuing companies is something that's called the Gordon Growth Model. Um, it exists in various formulations, some of them quite complex, some of them really straightforward. But one of the iterations of that is to say that your return as a shareholder is pretty much going to be the dividend yield that you're starting with now 
and how much that dividend is likely to grow. So this is useless for WiseTech. <laughs> a lot of the companies I own. So it's 0%. <laughs> it's, it's, and... it, it, it's a fast growing, you know, or, or yeah. read cloud. It's never gonna, yeah. it, but for, for established companies that have a history and a likely commitment to keep paying a dividend and where you can reasonably thumb suck growth rates, I think it's really, really, really neat. Um, and I'll give you a quick example of that. So Woolworths, right? Everyone knows Woolies, been around for a million years, probably be around for a lot longer yet. So their current yield is about 3%. Um, now, this is the hard part of valuation. You've got to come up with some kind of forecast or assumption. I prefer to call it a guess because it's, it's what it is. But let's say for me, I think that they can probably at best grow that dividend at about 3% per year over the sort of the medium to longer term. So that means that my total shareholder return, 3 plus 3, is going to be about 6%. So the question then for me is, is a 6% return on Woolworths good enough? Now, if the answer is yes, and particularly if your focus is on yield and you factor in that actually there's franking credits with that and when you think that interest rates are so low. Mm -hmm. So there's no right or wrong. But for me, no way. Yeah. <laughs> pass, yeah, it's yeah, a hard yeah. pass. Yeah. I, I do not want to buy a, a boring, structurally challenged business yeah. in a lot of ways. With, and everything with else, all yeah. of the changes to and, and what's happening with their margins, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, 6% ain't going to cut it. So what you can do, and again, this is where it gets a bit hard on, on um, verbally, but is you can solve that equation backwards. You could say, well, I want a 10% return. So if I want a 10% return, and I think dividends are probably going to grow at about 3%, well, I need a 7% yield. Now, if they're paying about, a, I think it's a dollar three last dividends, you can you can work it out. It basically says, well, fair price is about 14 or 15 bucks. A long way yeah. from where it is. Um, it's probably not unreasonable to say, well, actually, you should count franking credits in that, which means I should demand a 5% yield. Again, hard to do verbally, but that probably gives me a share, a fair value under the rationale, under those assumptions of about $18, $19. Mm -hmm. Now, again, you can get way too clever for your own good with valuation but at a nice high level thumb suck it says to me that i just don't think shares i don't think the market's right it's certainly not right for me if i was going to buy this this thing gets to 18 bucks i'm very interested um if it gets to 12 bucks i'm exceedingly interested um at closer to 30 dollars or 27 or whatever it is now it, that's a hard pass Another really um, useful way of thinking about value, valuation is approaching it from a price earnings multiple. We mm -hmm. talk a lot about PEs, the share price divided by its, the, the company's earnings on a per share basis. Again, not going to be useful for, for a lot of companies, but for some, for some of the more established ones, quite useful. So what you can do is you, we know what a company's earnings per share. I just look it up, the latest annual report and say, oh, I think that'll grow. Again, let's use Woolies as an example. It's actually earning, I think, about $1.29, I think it is, per share. I think they'll probably grow at about 3%. I, by the way, I think I'm being pretty generous with that. Yeah, um, with the 3%. Yeah, yeah right. you know, I've heard a lot of arguments. In fact, some of the consensus figures are below that. So, yeah. but, but what I should, as a quick diversion here, I think this is one of the very useful things that you can do with valuations. We love to end on an exact number and that's my valuation. I guess at some point you do, but what you can do with some of these methodologies is you can say, well, what kind of growth do I need for this yeah. to make sense? You can, you can back it out. Yeah, I right. can just test it. Well, let's, let's see what this looks like if it grows at 5%. Yeah. Let's see what it looks like if it grows at 1%. And you can sort of test a range of scenarios. And it's, it's really useful when you look at some of these. I said before with ReCloud, it seems really expensive. Um, I, I can say that because for that to make sense, 
yes, maybe sales do grow double every year for the next few years, but kind of when I do that, I still end up with a very high price to sales ratio in, in the future. So it's, that's where it's very useful. Anyway, so back to the model. Take, take your, your earnings per share, grow it at like 3% for the next three years. It means that under my assumption, I think that they're probably earning $1.40 per share in 2022. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a guess, but that's, that's my starting point. And I can, now I have to come up with a guess for the PE ratio. Yeah, and in 2022. In 2022. Yeah. Now, how do you do that? I mean, that, that, what's the market going to be thinking then? I've got no idea. But I know that it's probably spurious for me to say 30. Yeah. For a company that's going at 3%, I've, I've probably got rocks in my head to think the market is yeah. ever going to value it at that. At the same time, eight is ridiculous. I mean, the, comp- the market's not that dumb, right? So long-term average, about 16 for the market. For an estel- I'm going to start with that, right? Okay, cool. So $1.40 times 16 gives me about 22 bucks. That means under my assumptions, Woolies will be worth $22 in three years' time. Yeah. And it's now worth $27. So very, it's a rough heuristic, but very roughly I can say shares are too expensive. So when I say shares are too expensive, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Now, Let's invert that. For someone to say today, I think Woolworths is a buy, what they need to do for me, well, they don't have to do anything for me, but what I would encourage they do for themselves and to others when they're trying to articulate the investment case is say, how do you get to $27 and make that fair? Either, if you think about it logically, either you think earnings have to grow much faster than 3%, and maybe you're right, maybe they will, but, but why do you think that? Or, or and or, you think that the market's going to be prepared to pay 20 times earnings uh, in 2022. And if that is your argument, I mean, I think you need to be able to, to justify that. And it gets harder and harder as you go up. So, look, I, I dumped a lot of stuff on everyone there. <laughs> I do apologize. Yeah. But I guess I guess all I'm trying to say is just to, just to draw a line under this is start with some basic assumptions. What's growth going to be like? What's a reasonable yield or what's a reasonable PE? Multiply these numbers together, see what you end up with, and then contrast that. The, you, the, one of the great things about investing is you've got thousands of different choices out there and good investors are very patient. You can just say that, look, I will wait for Woolworths yeah. to get to $14. And if it doesn't, fine, there's other fish in the sea. And if it does, great, now I'll, now I'll be a buyer and I can rationalize and justify that objectively yeah and i think the great point about what you're raising andrew is that you don't have to start off doing um complex valuations you know i am a big fan of those myself but um if you're just getting started particularly um you don't need to start with that you can just start with just thinking about the peer you'll already be ahead of you know probably 80 percent of punters out there are just buying something because it's hot so far ahead. so like just starting with these things whether it's gordon gross model or you know the p multiple kind of thing that's a really good rough cut um and if you're Probably if you're not like, if that's not looking interesting, then, you know, it's, it's, it's very rare that I would go through a detailed valuation and suddenly I like something that I didn't like, you yes. know, to, to, you know, at a much broader view. I think you, so, I get what yeah. you're saying. You have to like the company qualitatively. Yeah. Before you bother with the quantitative, yeah, of, and for, also, for, I guess our style. and also these kind of rough cut valuations probably will also be looking attractive before you dig into the nitty gritty details, unless yeah. you're doing something weird with like valuing the assets. You think that the tankers that it owns are worth more than whatever, you know? Like, yes, unless you get yes. into that level of stuff, if you're looking at a business itself, probably the the detailed valuation might put, allow you to put a more precise point on it, but it's still going to agree with the kind of broader broader cut as well. 
Uh, 100% agree. In fact, that's one of the things that I, I'm really passionate about with Stroma. And we actually say, put in your valuation. And mm. I, I don't care how you come up with it. Just put in, like, tell me and the community why you think this thing is worth buying. What is it cheap? Um, and, and it's been really interesting, particularly some of the newer members, they sort of just throw in a number, but there's no supporting rationale for mm. that. Now, I'd really encourage people not to be too nervous about it. No one knows what the real valuation is. Yeah. You could be totally right um, or you could be totally wrong. But when you give a little bit more detail, it helps others work it out. But forget that. Do it for yourself. Yeah. Like you can use this as an investment diary. Come back later on and say, well, I thought WiseTech was worth $280 a share yeah. because of X, Y, and Z. And if you can't do that for you, you've got no business buying shares. I completely agree. I think that's, I think that's a really good point. It just forces, by forcing yourself to put a number on it, you start thinking, oh, actually, like when would I choose to sell some of this? Or how, how cheap do I think? You get really excited just putting any number, even if it's you know a roughest to start with, it forces you to start thinking along those lines. I think it's and the thing. other important thing about valuation just in general is that once you've come up with some kind of rough number, that should never just be set in stone. Yeah, exactly. It changes, new information. New information. You learn more. You, you understand the business better. Let, the business updates something. Something happens in the market. Yeah. Well, let's just say, that, just to stick to Rico, let's say that like the next full year result, actually they turned out that their full year revenue was $18 million. I don't mm. think it will be, but let's say it was. I'm radically going to change my view of that business. And I should. You yeah. know, when the facts change... I changed my mind. I forget who said that, but I love it. You know, it's this idea that we originally, you know, people get accused of flip-flopping and changing their mind. Changing your mind is a wonderful strength to have in the market. As long as you can be objective with that, I think it's a really, really great idea to have. So, And I think that's a fantastic place to, uh, to end it there. That was a really good discussion. Thanks very much uh, for Andrew for running through your thoughts on valuation. And yeah, thanks everyone for tuning in. Yeah, always a pleasure. We love having your company each and every week we hope you enjoy it as much as we do uh, but we'll be back next week with more monkey goodness thank you